let's talk about where we're headed with this series on worship and music. First of all, worship and music are obviously not the same thing, though the two are tied together so tightly in modern Christian jargon that it gets a little confusing sometimes. Worship is almost used as a uh, synonym for music, but music is just one tool that can be used to express worship. Worship is much more than music. Worship is much more than even what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings, though we often refer to this as worship. So we're going to start by just studying worship in general and making sure we've got a strong foundation there. That'll be about the first third of our time. And then we'll start talking about the kinds of worship that God calls us to do together as a church family. We call those things congregational worship or corporate worship worship, corporate referring to the body, what the, what the body does when it gathers together because it's the things God calls us to do in worship together. So worship first, then corporate worship second. By the way, this is why we have a deacon for corporate worship, but we don't have a deacon for worship because a deacon for worship would be a deacon for everything. <laughs> All of life is worship. So we don't have a deacon for worship. We have a deacon for what the worship we do when we gather all together as a church family. Um, so we'll talk about this later when we get to corporate worship. But you could, you could say that the worship we do together on Sundays comes out of a week full of worship and then heads into a week full of worship. It restores and refreshes and renews us after a hard week of worship in our neighborhoods and our homes and our workplaces and so forth. And then it builds us up and strengthens us and prepares us to go back out into another week of worship. So we'll talk about that more when we get to congregational worship. So worship first, congregational worship second, and then music. Music is not the only part of corporate worship, but it's the one big part of corporate worship that we've just never, almost never really uh, taught about as a church family. So it's time. The Bible says so much about music. The Bible even refers to God's singing. God commands us to use music in his praises. There are lots of song texts in scripture. And in addition to those things, music is also this just global reality. And I know there are some people who say, I just don't like music. I don't do music. But they are rare, the people who don't even like it in any way. You go anywhere around the world, the music will change in style and sound and, and even keys and, and so forth. But the, the love for music is, is all over. You, um, that's because of God. And so be, be, beyond, so you've got the church, the Bible side of it. You've got the global side of it. And then you've just got, music is just fun. And maybe I'm a little nerdy about this. But I just think music is a part of God's creation that is so fun to learn about and to rejoice in. Um, some of you have had this experience in our home of having us gather you around the sound system and just listen to something because it's like, you got to hear this. It's so cool. Um, I think that is the way God designed it to, me, to, to be. So we will spend a little bit of time looking at God's gift of music. We'll dabble just a tiny bit in the science of it because God's 
the marvel of the creation of it is so incredible. We'll talk about the relationship between worship and music. We'll talk about how we can all participate in music and gathered worship. We'll talk about the next generation of musicians and how we can develop our corporate worship. We'll talk about why music has been so controversial among Christians and uh, also how we can best choose and use music in our personal lives. So lots of things that I can't wait to talk about. Some of you know that I have been planning to teach on this since at least 2018. Um, I went back and looked at my notes. In fall of 2019, I thought I was starting to kick into gear to get it scheduled, and then something happened in early 2020. Um, so here we, here we are now, finally. Um, one thing I'm not going to do in this series is spend time, much time critiquing unbiblical worship. Sometimes churches have gotten so excited about trying to get as many people as possible through the doors that they've done a lot of concerning things um, in the name of worship or in the name of evangelism through worship or whatever. Even this week, the cover story of the latest edition of Christianity Today magazine is titled, Our Worship is Turning Praise into Secular Profit. And the article is about the corporate consolidation in the worship industry and the auctioning off of song rights of some of the most popular songs and stuff to the highest bidder. And um, so the number of secular investors who have a stake, a financial stake in what we sing on Sunday mornings. So the article is asking the question, how will their financial incentives shape the church? Um, so there is a lot to be concerned about with worship, but there are other preachers and other writers who've, who've tackled that and those critiques I'm going to keep the focus on us. How can we spend our whole lives in the worship of the one glorious God? How can we gather then together as worshipers and honor him together? And then how can we enjoy and use God's gift of music um, for his glory? So can't wait. We've got, Lord willing, between 18 and 20 sermons or Bible studies here. Um, and then we will, we will need to be done with something that we could talk about forever because worship is all of life, and it literally is forever. So we will stick with 18 or 20 lessons, sermons. Okay, so let's start with some introduction, beginning with the word worship and the definition of worship, though I'm not going to give you a definition of worship. Um, it is well known, of course, that the English word worship comes from worth and has to do with being worthy of honor or giving honor and, you know, interesting, that word in, doesn't necessarily have to reply, apply to God. And there are some English-speaking cultures that would refer to, like, a judge or a political leader as your worthship, uh, one worthy of having worth and worthy of honor. Uh, but, of course, over time, the English word has become dominantly associated with uh, how people express reverence for their God or God's. So it's mostly used in a religious way today. That's the general way the English word is used. Now, if we want to learn what the Bible says about something, we normally just look up the word in the Bible, right? So we just look up the word worship in the Bible and study everything the Bible has to say about worship. But when it comes to worship, that doesn't work very well. And I want to take a couple minutes and explain to you why this morning. And what we're going to do next might seem a little bit... Uh, Wow, this is the second time I've used the word nerdy in about three minutes. That might seem a little nerdy, but as people who love God, we love to look carefully at what God says, even the specific words he uses when he has spoken to us in his word. So that's, that's what we're going to do for a minute here. But I also just want to help equip you 
to, to, to find worship in your Bible. So, the challenge with just looking up the English word worship is that there are several different Hebrew and Greek words that have to do with worship. Sometimes the Bible translators decide to translate them with the English word worship, and sometimes not. So, for example, let's say that you have a Hebrew or Greek word that means to bow down, and it's talking about bowing down before God. Should you translate it worship? Or you have a word that means to praise, and it's talking about praising God. Should you translate it worship? Another key word, and the really the one that, that um, gets especially interesting, is the word serve. When you have a word that when you have the word serve, and it's talking about serving God, and when those Greek and Hebrew words can refer specifically to like the service of worship, like priestly service, should you translate that worship? Um, and I'll mention that again in just a second. The point is that if you want to study worship in the Bible. You can start by looking up the English word worship, but there are a lot of other passages that probably have to do with worship that might not use that English word. So let me show you. This is where we get nerdy. All right. So uh, here's a chart of which Hebrew words are being translated with the English word worship in the Old Testament in the ESV. Okay, so the circle, I'm going to use my laser pointer, even though I know that won't help those of you watching online. I apologize for that. So the circle is kind of like a pie chart, and this is uh, representing all of the uses of the English word worship, and then the sections of the circle are which Hebrew words are being translated as worship most commonly. And then the little tiny definition down here below the words, that's not how it's being translated because they're all being translated worship. This is like a little dictionary definition, a little gloss for each word. And the point is that each of these words is translated worship in the ESV. So you can see that this word here, which generally means to bow down, is translated worship the most, 76 times in the ESV Old Testament. But there's also this word up here that can mean to till, toil, work, serve, that is translated worship several times. And this word, which is a different word again, that means to pay homage, that is also translated worship several times. The blue is just another form of this word. And then there are a few, a few others that are used a few times uh, down here. Something similar is true in the Greek New Testament. So now we're looking at the word worship in the New Testament, in the ESV. These are the Greek words, this word, is most dominantly translated worship, but then this word, notice this here, is used several times, and then you've got a whole smattering of other words that are sometimes translated worship uh, in the New Testament. All right, now let's go back to this chart from the Old Testament, and note that this is showing us all the uses in the ESV. And note that up here in the top right corner is a cool little chart. This is Logos Bible Software creates this for you. And uh, so that, that chart does a couple things. This is a little graph of all the places where the word shows up in the Old Testament. So like this is Exodus, this red band right here. This is Deuteronomy. This is 1 Kings. 
The long orange one is the Psalms. This is interesting. The little green spike right there is Daniel, which has the English word worship in it as many times as any place in any book in the Old Testament. Um, so anyway, it's just kind of a fun little thing they do to help you picture where a word shows up. And then the other thing that's right here is the number 111, which is telling you that the word, the English word worship is in the ESV Old Testament 111 times. Okay, now watch this. All right, we're still looking at the Old Testament. We're still looking at the word worship in the Old Testament. But our picture just, our, our graph just changed a lot. Why did it change? They're an eagle-eyed person who can figure out what I just switched. Yes, you are smart. I switched to the CSB. Now, a couple things then. You see this? Now what do we have? Whoa! The word worship is in, by the way, the CSB is the Christian Standard Bible, um, which is another excellent translation like the ESV. It is, an, it is an excellent translation. So the number change from 111 to 190. There has got to be an ESV conspiracy against worship because they use the word 70 whatever fewer times. By the way, if you're curious, the word worship shows up in the English King James 112 times. So if there's a conspiracy, the King James is in on it too, along with the ESV. Okay? There's no conspiracy. I'm joking. How did we get such a big difference with the CSB? Well, you can see that here's the word that's translated the most times in the ESV, right? Hava is there in here. But now look at this. Here's the serve word. And look. So you see what happened there. This is not the entire explanation, but it's almost all of it. The CSB translators, they decided that with that word serve, when it's used for serving God, it would really be best to translate that word as worship. And so you end up with uh, 79 more uses of the word worship in the CSB Old Testament, the English word, than in the ESV Old Testament. So here, here's an example. Uh, Deuteronomy 13.4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and serve him. CSB says you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him and worship him. It's a, it's a translator's decision on which way to translate that word. All right, so what's the point of all of that? Um, I mean, admittedly, I am using it as an opportunity to remind us a little bit about how Bible translations work. God inspired his word in the original languages and then has preserved his word through translations. Um, and it's good for us to sometimes be reminded of, of how that works. But my main point is that if you study worship in the Bible, you're not just looking for the word worship. So on your handout, the blanks, it's not just a word. It's not so much a word, though that's true, as it is a concept. There actually isn't any Greek or Hebrew word that exactly corresponds to our English word, worship, uh, like that. So we're looking for a, a concept more than just a word. Some passages are going to use the word worship. Other passages aren't. So the ESV uses the word worship 111 times, but the Old Testament talks about worship more than that. The CSV uses it 190 times, but the Old Testament talks about worship more than that. For example, Genesis 1 and 2. Those chapters may not use the word worship, and yet Adam and Eve were called to worship 
to listen to God, to serve Him, to walk in His ways, to obey Him, to fellowship with Him. It was a life of worship. Or consider the first commandment in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, the word worship isn't used there, but that's the command of all commands about worship. Don't worship any other God except except him. So to study worship in the Bible, we can't just study a word. We have to study a concept. And what's the concept? I think the simplest way to say it is, it's how people should respond to God. It's how people should respond to God. Now, that's not any sort of like formal definition of biblical worship or anything like that. It's just, we're just saying in the very simplest sense, the word worship is used to describe how people should respond to God. The word respond there is very, very important. We don't initiate our relationship with God. He reveals himself and we respond. He speaks and we respond. He acts and we respond. He created and we respond. You can see this all over the Bible. Worship is always response. True worship is how we should respond to God. And it's not only how we should respond to God, like in theory, it is also what we were created to do. You were wired for worship. How do we know that? Well, I mean, in one sense, the Bible tells us, but, but practically, observationally, how do we know that? Because when we don't do true biblical worship, when we don't respond to God like we should, we still worship, don't we? We just worship something else. Everybody is always worshiping. Human beings are always giving themselves to something, getting excited about something, dedicating their time to something, spending their money on something, telling others about something. That could all be called worship. We were wired to worship God, but sin got us off track. It corrupted our hearts so that we worship other things instead of God. But the fact that we always worship something shows that worship is part of our DNA, spiritually most of all, but even, even physically. So let's go now to a passage that does a great job of summing up what worship is. It's Deuteronomy 10, um, and I did go ahead and just put the text there in your handout too if you want to just follow along and make notes. This is the first of just a sampling of some key Old Testament passages we'll look at to lay a foundation about worship for about the next three weeks or so uh, before we'll come to Christ in the New Testament. And interesting, if you're looking at the ESV, the word worship isn't in this passage. Now that word serve is, so uh, the CSB would have the word worship here. But this is undoubtedly an entire passage about Worship, and there are three big themes here. I just listed them in your notes. Why we must respond to God as creator. Why we must respond to God as redeemer. And then how we must respond to God. If you've got a pen, you could just number those things, one, two, three. And then as we go through the text, you could write in numbers as you see those various things. Um, or if you've got a highlighter, you're in even, you can make it bright and fancy. Uh, Okay, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. 
So let's just start at the beginning of verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Now, just that opening phrase is full of reminders that God was their redeemer who had a personal relationship with them. Where did the name Israel come from? You remember? God gave it to Jacob, right? The angel of the Lord gave it to Jacob. Now, Israel, what does the Lord, that's, see the capital letters there, that's Yahweh, the God's name that he gave the Israelites to use for him. What does Yahweh, your God, require of you? So right away, this whole passage is set in the context of a covenant relationship with God, a relationship of redemption. Remember that here we're in Deuteronomy, right? So that means that um, that these words were spoken by God through Moses and then written here after God had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and before they go into the promised land. So now, Israel, what does Yahweh, your God, require of you? And, and, and that word require captures the underlying foundation of worship. Worship is the right response of man to God. It's the way we should respond to God. It's really the way we must respond to God in light of, of who God is and what God has done. If I jump all the way to Jesus for just a second, worship is the way we must respond to God. And when we don't respond to God that way, Jesus has to die for that sin. It's not okay to not give God what he is worthy of. It is sin. It's really foundational essence of sin that Jesus had to die for. So what does God require of you? So verse 12 continues, but to fear the Lord your God. This is also repeated down in verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. This fear can involve terror if we are rebelling against God and facing his judgment. This fear can also be awe, reverence, being amazed at how God is infinitely greater than us. And this is right where we just like, humanly speaking, when we start studying worship, we just run into a wall. Because we cannot awe ourselves with God. Now, we can stay away from his word and stay away from the things that God uses to awe us with himself. But you cannot force awe. The Spirit has to accomplish awe in our hearts as we expose our hearts to the Word with open hearts, with soft hearts, with soft soil. There is, there is a really humbling sense of dependence we have to have for this entire series. You see what I'm saying? We can't make it happen. We can't force the fear of the Lord to happen, though there are some ways in which we can choose to not fear the Lord. We need God to show us, for example, to remind us that he knows absolutely everything. Every thought, every action, every emotion. He knows right now the emotions, the motives that are going on in your heart and mind that you cannot even figure out yourself. He knows every single one of them. We need God to remind us of that in such a way that we go, oh, wow. Wow. 
We need God to remind us that he has absolute authority to do anything he wants. The most powerful rulers and nations come and go however he wants. Nobody can stop, grab his hand, Nebuchadnezzar said, or say to him, what are you doing? We need him to show us that again in such a way that we go, wow, there is nobody else like that. We need God to remind us again of how incredible his creation is. Like an almost infinite number of colors, I think you could say, and a human eye and brain that can, depending on how you calculate it, distinguish somewhere between 4 and 16 million of them. God could have created a world with like three colors. He gave us 16 million And then the human eye and the human brain that can distinguish something like that. The miracle of music and human development and birth and all these things. To see that God spoke that into existence and say, whoa. To know that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. That everything we know would instantly unravel if he just let go and say, whoa. To see God's holy jealousy for his glory, to see God's wrath against sin and go, whoa. To see that he is the judge who will hold every person accountable for all they have ever done. No one will ever ultimately get away with anything. They will either pay the price for their sin themselves or Jesus paid the full price for their sin. But there is absolute 100% justice in this universe. Whoa! To recognize that our life and breath and all things are in his hand and that at this very moment our life could end if he wished. To see that that God loves me and says things like, he's going to wipe away every tear from my eyes. That God? Whoa! There are some things that should make us fall down on our face. Maybe you noticed earlier, well, it's a little tricky, but on that chart, um, you saw that the, the most common Hebrew word translated worship meet, is the word that means generally to bow down. And proskuneo, the most common Greek word for worship, is the Greek word that means to bow down. So the most common Hebrew and Greek words for worship both have the idea of falling down on your face before God. We cannot just ignore these truths about God or deny them or get so distracted by the world that we pay no attention to them. And yet at the same time, we are dependent upon God to open our eyes as we seek him to allow us a little glimpse of who he really is so that we just genuinely say, wow, and we feel like we've just got to fall down on our face before him. Fear me. He says, the fear of God, as we've said at GBC for for our whole life as a church, the fear of God is big, biblical thinking about God. It is knowing him in all of his majesty and glory rather than as some small God that we imagine to be kind of like us. So first, worship God by fearing him, he says. And then uh, verse 12 continues, and to walk in all his ways. Worship is an entire lifestyle. It's not something you come to church and do for an hour. And I know that, 
I trust if you've been at GBC, you know that well, but you realize many people don't know that. They, they think that worship is from 10 to 11 on Sunday mornings. Worship is the way you live. You live His way. It continues to say, not only to walk in all His ways, but to love Him. Yes, it, is, it involves fear and awe and falling on your face, but it isn't just a cold, distant relationship. Love Him. As the passage will say in just a moment, He loved you, so love Him. And this love includes emotion, of course, but it's more than that. It's devotion, it's commitment, it's loyalty to Him. Worship is loving God. So fear Him, live His way, love Him, and next, serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. There's that serve word that the CSB took as, as worship. When we think of a servant, we think of someone who's always aware of what's going on around them and asking, how can I help? To serve God is to ask, God, what are you doing? What are your purposes? How could I get involved? How could I help? How could I serve you? Worship is serving God. Verse 13, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. For your good. Worship is obeying God if he is awe-inspiring and perfectly wise and he speaks all these things for our good, then we've got every reason to obey him. So there in verses 12 and 13, we have just a tremendous summary of man's response to God as our redeemer. When God brings you into a covenant relationship as his child. The right response is fear, lifestyle, love, service, and obedience. So from that, we can see worship involves basically everything in our lives, right? And it's actually a tiny bit humorous here. This is not a humorous passage, but I have to smile a little bit when you see that question mark at the end of verse 13. What does the Lord require of you? Well, just this. Fear, lifestyle, love, service, and obedience. What does the Lord require of you? Just this, just all of you dedicated completely to him. All right, now, it's interesting that verse 14, it's almost like God backs up to remind them, I'm not just your redeemer, I'm also your creator. Verse 14, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. So God reminds them that because he created all things, he owns all things. It's like we've backed up from God as redeemer now to God as creator. Everything belongs to him. And that means that all people belong to him, just like we said last Sunday. And so all people should respond to him in worship, even if they don't know him as redeemer yet. This is really important, simple, but important. Worship is not just for redeemed people. Worship is the duty of all people. Now, for an unsaved person, their first act of worship needs to be belief in the gospel. <laughs> but worship is something that all people are required to do. That's what Romans 1 says. It says that all people are without excuse. There's a way they have to respond to God, and there's no excuse. Because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
There is a right response to God. And so Paul goes on to write, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So that's what we were saying earlier. Human beings are wired for worship. So if we refuse to give God what he deserves, then we're going to go worship other things. So it's just very interesting that as God talks to Israel as his redeemed children and calls them to worship, he reminds them that he's the creator. And they're called to worship in that sense too. Verse 15, yet, yet, meaning even though God is the creator who owns all things, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. You see again that worship is a response. Abraham didn't go find God. God came to him. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose him, it says. Abraham didn't initiate a covenant and make promises to God. God made the promises to him. He set his love particularly on them. Verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. If God is both creator and redeemer, if he owns you as his creator and has set his heart in love on you as his redeemed children, then don't be stubborn any longer. Remember where we're at in Israel's history again at this point. This is through Moses, after God's brought them out of Egypt, after all of their failure at Sinai, after the wandering in the wilderness. So if we went back to Deuteronomy 9, we'd see that God had just talked them through the golden calf incident. God had just said, can I remind you what happened at Sinai? And he talked it through with them. He had just said, actually, if you look back at verse 10, Moses says, the end of verse 10, the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. You should have been destroyed because you didn't worship God. You worshiped false gods. And yet, in the Lord's mercy, you weren't destroyed. And so now, many years after that, through Moses, God is pleading with them to stop being stubborn. Stop acting as if you have an uncircumcised heart. Cut off the sin. Cut off the idolatry and be faithful to God alone. In other words, in Deuteronomy 10, God is not calling his people to worship for the first time. He's calling them back to worship. They have been stubborn and have become crusted over with sin and idolatry. And that might describe our hearts as we start into this study of worship. Not that this study will be the first time you've ever been called to worship, but that we have been stubborn to give God our fear, our lifestyle, our love, our service, and our obedience. And so there's gunk of sin to get cut off. There's idolatry to be cut away, false worship to be cut off. Verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. So is that verse describing God as redeemer or God as creator? Verse 17, redeemer or creator? That's a creator verse, right? True, for all people, he is God of gods, he is Lord of lords, he is great and mighty and awesome. 
Worship Him because of who He is. Verse 18, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God's character means that He is never partial, never takes a bribe, always carries out justice, and loves vulnerable people like orphans and widows and immigrants. So this is a description of God and His essential character. Yet at the same time, it also reminds Israel of their redemption because God set his love on them when they were the vulnerable people because of their sin. And that's what God says next, verse 19. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And when the Egyptians did not love you, God did. God set his heart on you and rescued you. But verse 19 is really important because it means that part of worship is treating other people with the same love and kindness with which God has treated, treated us. See how verses 18 and 19 go together? God loves the sojourner. So love the sojourner. That's worship. Worship happens at work, on the baseball team, at the dinner table, in the classroom, in every relationship, we worship when we treat others with the same love and the same kindness that God has shown to us. He loves the sojourner, so love the sojourner. Verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. That repeats, reemphasizes from verse 12. You shall serve him. We also have that word in verse 12. And hold fast to him. Now, we didn't have that word, but this is really repeating another word from Another concept from an earlier word. You know what hold fast would be repeating? Love. Because remember, love is not just emotion. Love is commitment. Love is faithfulness. Love is loyalty. Adultery is not love. The golden calf at Sinai was not love. Idolatry is not love. Hold fast to him in love. We can easily turn our worship away from God to other things. We can leave God in the dust in our minds and hearts and, and move on. Worship clings to him, holds fast to him, is loyal to him in love. So fear, verse 20, fear, serve, hold fast, and by his name you shall swear, which is also part of loyalty. In other passages, God told Israel, don't swear by the name of other gods. That's a big insult. Why? Because you swear by the most important thing you can think of. And so if what you think of when you make an oath is some other God, um, you're way off track. You're not, you're not worshiping God. In modern terms, what that means is, what do you depend on? When you really need certainty, when you really need stability, what's the number one thing you turn to? If it's something other than God, then it is idolatry. That's the concept. Look to God, not lesser things. Verse 21, he is your praise. I think the, the wording of that reminds us that everybody always praises. What are you going to praise? You're always praising something. He is your praise. There's a whole worship industry built around musical praise, and it's true. That is worship. Um, because as John Piper says it, we praise what we prize. Our praise reveals what we really worship. So part of worship is praise. 
But we've seen already in the passage that worship is much more than praise, right? Verse 21 continues, He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Okay, so are we talking about God as creator or redeemer now? He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons and about to starve to death. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven, which is just what he promised Abraham when it seemed impossible. He is your God. He has kept his promises. He has done amazing things for you. He has redeemed you to be his own. And so what does he require of you? What is the right response? The fear of God, walking in his ways, living in love, serving God, obeying God. That's biblical worship. Now, though I'm laying Old Testament foundation for these first three weeks or so, we've got to keep remembering that to get the full picture, we have to go to the New Testament too and bring in Christ. This is an Old Covenant passage, and they reconfirmed the Old Covenant before they entered the Promised Land, the Old Covenant between Israel and God. Um, actually, in these verses, we see the need for Christ, don't we? This passage is stern because Israel has been repeatedly failing to worship God. They kept turning to idols, kept turning away from God, rebelling, blaspheming him. This is a passage that calls them back to worship, but ultimately, this is a passage that calls us to Christ. For Jesus to come and be the one true, perfect worshiper and to give us new hearts of worship. So this passage by itself doesn't give us the whole picture because there's no Jesus here. But at the same time, the principles about worship here are right. Each of these principles is repeated in the New Testament, but in a way that is centered on Christ and permeated with grace. Fear God in Christ. Walk in God's ways. I mean, even be imitators of God, the New Testament says. Live in love. Serve God. Obey God. These things are all over, all over the New Testament. Our Worship is our whole life response to who God is and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so <clears throat> to just come full circle all the way back to where we started this morning, we started with the English word worship, which has to do with worth, worthiness. And these things we're talking about here are the response that God is worthy of, that God deserves. And it's such a contrast to the world's view that we considered in the Identity Seminar last week. The world says, there is one thing that is required of you, and that is that you keep your whole life for yourself. And God says, give your whole life to me. The world says, keep your whole life for you. And God says, give your whole life to me. Because he is, he is worthy of that. All right, that's our start for today. So let me just give you two words of practical encouragement or challenge as we get ready for the rest of this series. Um, so first of all, just practically, you will, there's a, I know God can override our stubbornness and so forth, but I think in general we can all agree that you will get out of this series what you put into it, in a sense. You see what I'm saying? Um, uh, 
I was just, my brother was just here this week, and so I, I always love talking to him. And he has a he has a seminar he does for college students, Christian college students, um, to try to help really set their perspective on the Christian college experience. And he has a phrase he uses um, for them, which is uh, co-creation. Uh, he's trying to help them understand that college, Christian college, is about forming you as a person. And that that process of forming you as a person doesn't happen as you sit there passively and just float along with whatever, um, you know, try to let the teachers form you. That process happens when you get engaged in that process and you and your professors, you and the school, you and your dorm leadership are working together to see what God might do in forming you as, as a person. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's a different context talking about college students and so forth. But it does apply here, right? Um, as we come to God's word and want to grow as, as worshipers, God calls us to seek him. The Lord is near to all who call on him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Two things from Hosea. Sometimes we need to Hosea 14, verse 2, take with us words and return to the Lord. Go talk to God about worship. Or Hosea 10, 12, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Don't sit back passively waiting to see if something might happen in your heart through this series. Seek the Lord. Take with you words and come to him. Break up your fallow ground and seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. So two uh, practical ideas about how to do that. Um, and the, the first of these, um, it's fine if you choose not to do this um, because it's a little, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just going to say it. Here we go. Here's what I did this week. I took a piece of paper and I wrote at the top of the paper, uh, I wrote, <laughs> where's my paper? What did I write at the top? Am I a worshiper of God? Here's my, here's my, my paper. It's digital paper, right? I wrote at the top, am I a worshiper of God? And then I wrote, yes, no. And then below yes and no, I wrote, because. And then I started in the no column. And, uh, and this is where I'm, I'm a little bit tentative in saying you, you really have to go do this because I'm not trying to get you stuck in some, like, confusing introspection. It's essential that if you do something like this, you end up at Christ. When I got to the bottom of the I am a worshiper column— What's at the bottom of that column is I am forgiven of my idolatry and my lack of worship because Jesus died for me. And I am clothed in the righteousness of the perfect worshiper, Jesus Christ. So the point of this is not to get you stuck in the mud of doubt and despair. But if you feel like you're at a place where you're not sure whether your heart needs this series, that might help you. Because when I started with the no column, things you might see in my life, things I see in my life that might make me say, I'm not sure you're worshiping God, Tim. That was a sober column. By the time I got to that, it did not feel good at all.
Now, thankfully, then I went on to the I am and pointed to some of the things God has done in my life. But there's an idea for you. If you're kind of feeling flat, like, I don't know if I care, um, that might help you. It helped me when I did that. And then one other idea, practically, is uh, I would encourage you to make, keep a, uh, a, just a really simple little journal of this sermon series. In other words, after each sermon or Bible study lesson in this, go home and sometimes that week, that we, sometime that week, just write down some things that you learned and that God's doing in your heart through that. And then week two, read your notes from week one and then write your notes from week two. And then on week three, read your notes from week one and week two and then write about week three. You will find tremendous help in that. And the reason why I know this is because I find tremendous help in writing out my own summary of these series um, because I just forget so fast. And we need the continuity of what God does in our heart across this. So I would strongly encourage you to do that. I think it will help you a lot and, and bring a lot of joy to your heart because you'll be like, oh, right, right, right. God was working in my heart about that four weeks ago and then that three weeks ago. And that connects to what I heard this Sunday about this. It starts to build in your heart in a really uh, special way. So that's a couple just practical things you could do uh, to seek the Lord. All right, let's close in prayer. Uh, and then Pastor John's going to come and transition you into uh, Discipleship Connect. Um, and after he uh, introduces Discipleship Connect uh, 10 to 12s, you'll uh, week that Bible study back here during Discipleship Connect. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in our, in our sense of struggle to worship you. We, we come to you in our frustration with the dullness of our own hearts that we do not fear you like we wish we did. And yet we come to you with gratitude that uh, you have caused us to be born again and you have put in us a desire to worship you. That's a miracle of grace in your spirit. And so even though we, we see our falterings and our weakness and our failings, we want to worship you. We would love for this next few months to draw us closer to you. Help every person here to seek the Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.